What's up, all you SMFs? Welcome to the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes and Spotify. Also, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast. And, of course, our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today, Jason and I are... I'm, I'm going to interrupt you right here. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to like totally grab the mic out of your hand right now. And I'm going <laughs> to say this. Can you believe who we have today? No, and what, an, what an influ what a, what a part of a, of a movement and an influencer he has become just business wise. Uh, and just overall, because of the things that he's into nowadays, uh, I'll let you go ahead and say who it is, but you you won't believe the next name that's that's going to pop out of the that magic hat. <laughs> yeah, here. give it to we're, him. We're absolutely giddy to have JJ French from Twisted Sister on our show today, and yes. uh, Jason and I are huge Twisted Sister fans. Twisted was a massive part of my growing up, my teenage years, my young twenties. Uh, they were a huge global i mean made a huge global impact all around the world for every one of our generation everybody knows uh i want to rock we're not going to take it everybody knows the mtv videos they were can't massive. stop right can't stop rock and roll so let me, let me roll. jump in let me jump in here again and say this um this episode is not about twisted sister at all Right. We get that to was, Twisted. We talk about Twisted, and J.J. was gracious enough to uh, take the ball and run with it and shared a number of stories. But uh, well, it wouldn't, be talk, it wouldn't be Talk Louder without me just completely fanboying out on whoever we have on the line, and that yeah. definitely is going to happen. But yeah, um, this is unbelievable. Uh, I have not uh, had a chance to sit down with uh, J.J.'s book, which is called Twisted Business. We will be talking about that. Uh, with JJ here in just a second. But Dave, you have been able to not just flip through. I've read the foreword on uh, in Twisted Business, but you actually were able to get through the whole book. What are some quick points that that uh, you think are important to this episode? Well, I, I think me included, a lot of people aren't quite aware of the scope of JJ's uh, reach. You know, you think of him as the uh, guitar player in Twisted Sister, but for a number of years, he managed the band he uh, was a songwriter. He's the founding member of Twisted Sister. He owns the name Twisted Sister. He uh, branched out and managed other groups, including Seven Dust at one point. Uh, he is now a motivational speaker. Uh, he goes to conventions and talks about how to become successful, which is basically the premise of his book, Twisted Business. It's his perspective on the music business and the pitfalls and the ways in which you succeed and he shares it from his perspective. So if you go out and you find that book, be prepared for a really sort of a behind-the-scenes look at how he and Twisted Sister sort of navigated the path to success. And as you all know, when they found success, it was massive. So J.J. knows what he's talking about. Cool. Well, uh, it is an honor to just be able to say... Uh, that our guest today on the Talk Louder podcast is Mr. J.J. French. This is how practical my mother was. So I was dealing drugs, and I, and I said, so here's the thing, Mom. I could deal on the street, but if you let me deal out of the house, it'll be, more, it'll be safer. 
<laughs> and she said, okay, if you give me 10%. So, wow. so that's, that's mom. This is well, where you get your, your business brain from. This is right? exactly where that's that your, came from. That practical mom shit. You know, I want to call that, I want to call that twisted logic. <laughs> there you well, go. It's, it's, I was going to say, I was going to say that's part of, uh, that's part of the, the reason you have a book called Twisted Business, because that is a good business, because you're probably not wrong. Other than yeah. she would have gotten trouble, too. You would have been bringing trouble. Yeah, and, and it was dangerous because I let yeah. a lot of weird people in the house. And and yeah. uh, and it, look, the book, you know, goes in, all into it could have yeah. gone south in in a hundred different ways. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I, it didn't and it didn't go south in any way. And that's the only reason why I survived. So I saw. Uh, I saw you guys in 1983, Can't Stop Rock and Roll Tour. I looked for the date. I can't remember the date. It was it's at in a the small, book, probably. You know. at a small club called Cardi's here in Austin, Texas. Yes. In, in North Austin. Yes. And there was a male dance review. Strip, strip. Yes. Uh, so, so when people say to me, do you, what do you remember? Like, what do you remember? Like, people say to me, you've done thousands and thousands of shows. Which shows stick out? <laughs> Okay, so I can tell you that opening up for a chimpanzee that stuck out because mm -hmm. he blew us off the stage. So that that blew that that sticks out. Opening playing, yeah, it's in the book. But the male review in Cardi's absolutely sticks out because we were driving in rental cars all around the United States during that tour. We had no tour support, and we had come down from from. Um, from Denver, 22 hours, and we played Austin, Beaumont, Houston. I don't know which one, which one it was. Which one is the furthest of, of Austin, Beaumont, and Houston? Which is the, the most south? Houston. Houston, Houston and Beaumont are way down there. Okay, so we probably did Austin. So we did, so we pull into Austin, and this, and we look in the, you know, in the back, and there's a group packed with girls and we're thinking finally the chicks are getting it you know what i mean like because we really haven't been drawing too many women you know we're looking and like we're seeing all these girls like going apeshit for whoever the opening band was we i wasn't paying attention to what was going on <laughs> and uh and i said guys man fucking place is loaded with chicks finally you know like this is this is it and then the male stripper stopped dancing and all the girls like <laughs> And I and I said, we are we are headlining over a bunch of male strippers. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I absolutely and then I absolutely remember that date. And I by the way, that date is in um, it's August of 83. And it's in, I'm sure yeah. it's in the book. Yeah. The, all the dates are in the book. Right. So, so I'm sure if you go to August 80, you'll see the Austin date. So in, in Texas, book. the drinking age, we were we were at me and my friends were at the age where we were chasing the drinking, not because we wanted to drink necessarily, but because we wanted to get into a, a real venue to see, you know, a bar that sold liquor to see some bands, some up and coming bands that we were way into from magazines and just hearing about them word of mouth and such. And you guys were hot shit and i was a huge fan and and i had a stack of records even by by those times standard i had the uk 12 inches and seven inches and you guys signed it all your show even though there was only 15 ma dressed males in the crowd i don't believe there was a woman in sight other than my mother who had to get me and my friends in because we weren't old enough to get in so she sat in the back and read a book bless her heart rest in peace mom i i love her so much for taking 
<laughs> me and our friends to Twisted Sister as our chaperone. Dude, even though there was only 15 of us in there who had your records, who were t obviously totally into it, totally burning hot for you guys, dude, your energy was off the charts. There was Always. practically no one in there. Your energy was off the... You guys played to like there was ten thousand people in there. Yeah, that's that's Damn. really that's what really that, that's what we did. Always. It is what you did, and, and we also knew we also knew that okay, the word's not quite out yet, and I'm not gonna and these and you guys are not gonna suffer from that. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, like so it was a it was a night where a lot of people didn't show up. Doesn't matter. We we would do that whether it was ten people in the room or ten thousand people in the room, and it's a cliche that bands do it, but that's actually how we did it. We yeah. it never mattered. At all? No, it's no, it's ever. True. It never mattered at all, and and it, and all the and the, the 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 key to that is that you went and told people, oh my god, there was no one in the room, and they played like there's ten thousand people in the room. That and if we sucked, you wouldn't want man. They were bored. They were pissed off. They did the songs like you know they kind of did it and walked home. And yeah, and, yeah. and what good that would, would would that have done? You guys were you guys were a freight train, and it was unbelievable, and it's so appreciated. And and what blew our minds is everybody who was there. Basically, it was me and a bunch of my friends. It was like a dude. It was like a private show. Anyway, you guys came out. You guys went went back and you know took off your your stuff, and you came back just in your clothes. And you guys signed everything, and you hung out and spoke to everyone in the bar. And I, playing in bands my entire—I was in bands back then. Playing in bands my entire life, that showed me so much. And I was into it as much as you were into it, which totally, obviously, pays off as a fan who who is also a songwriter and a touring musician and blah, blah, blah. blah. It was just—it really set the bar— to for someone a young person who wants to do that to see you guys you know play the set that you just did and then come in and shake hands and and kiss babies and and sign records from fans who totally cared and i feel like it was so early on in twisted's whole career as far as that goes i know in the movie you guys say you're a band from the 70s who made it in the 80s and i love that um but it showed that well, you okay, let, let me tell you something. Okay. Yeah, tell me. So here's a story I don't tell a lot, but but now in this context, I'll tell you. So so we're a bar band, right? So we played millions of nights in the bars. And they're all in the book, thousands and thousands of shows. And of course, some nights suck. You know, a lot of our fans from Long Island, they have this romantic fantasy that every night was packed. And it wasn't. There were plenty of nights it wasn't. There were plenty of nights it weren't. So we were the house band for many bars, but in this one particular bar called the four and aft in, in white plains. And we played every Tuesday night for nine months. Okay. For nine months. So we started in the summer of 77 and played nine months, every Tuesday for nine months. So by the end of October, the Yankees were in the world series. Okay. So here we are a bar band and we're, and the club is, this club is a very small club but we have our Marshall stacks and we're playing super lap and, um, and it's a Tuesday night and the Yankees were playing whoever was playing and they had the game up on the, on the, the bar TVs and nobody wanted to hear twisted. They wanted to watch the world series. They would tell us to shut up or turn down or they could watch the world world series, you know? So just to give you an idea of how, what the respect level was, you know, it's like, well, you guys shut the fuck up. We're trying to watch the world series. So, and, and we were used to it. So we would wait until the game ended before we went back out because it's stupid to play when they don't want to sit there and watch it. They'll just drug people at the bar. But this one particular night, 
Ace Frehley came down and, and, you know, he lived near there. And so he shows up and everybody knows Ace because he would show up and he would drink and get drunk. And there's a famous story about Ace uh, leaving this bar in White Plains and getting in his first car accident. That was that night. He got drunk and drove the wrong way down Route 22 and hit nine parked cars. And that was the first time that Ace was arrested. And, and nobody was surprised because mm -hmm. that's what he did. And this is not disparaging against Ace. I'm putting this in the context of the time because I happen to also respect him a great deal for what he did, for being a rock hero. No problems with that. He's like the American Keith Richards, in a way. You know, he suddenly inspired more. I, I always say that Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, and Ace Frehley were the most inspirational people. Doesn't matter if he was technically great, he inspired more people to be sure. So anyway, so Ace gets drunk and and he pissed all he got drunk, he stood up and pissed all over these tables. They threw him out and <laughs> you know, Ace. And he gets in his car, drives a Roman. However, that night, that particular night, we start playing. And some guy's going, you guys aren't fucking loud enough, man. Now you have to understand this club is really small and the stage is really high. So the martial amps are at ear level and it's already blisteringly fucking loud. And this guy's going, you guys aren't fucking loud enough. Now, when a guy heckles us, especially in the bars, we call him on stage. And go. invariably we get them on stage and they're like five, eight and me, D and Mark stand around the guys and we're like six, six. And they're like, Hey man, like all of a sudden, I love you, man. I really want to fuck with you. So, <laughs> and this guy goes, you're not fucking loud enough. And I said, and I grabbed him by the hair and I put his head in the, in the, in the, in the upper cabinet, the marshal, and I hit an E and he goes, not loud enough. So I tell the road crew to duct tape the motherfucker to the Marshall amplifier. So they tape this guy like Jesus Christ, <laughs> arms extended to the, my Marshall stack for the whole set. I mean, an hour. This dude is taped. And I keep turning around and look at him to think if, you know, and he's like, like the happiest guy. Oh, I'm getting his thumbs up, you know. So at the end of the set, wow. we, cut, we cut him down. And, and for years, for years, I'm always wondering. What happened to that guy? You know, like yeah. whatever happened. Like I think of all the weird shit, and and that, what happened to that guy? So That's a couple of years legend. later, I'm walking through Grand Central Station, and and I hear some guy yell out, and I normally don't pay attention, but somehow the guy's voice is one of these New York like fucking Jay, like one of those like you know Sopranos kind of things. <laughs> fucking JJ, what the fuck, man? <laughs> so I, I turn around and I go. All right, what, what, what's up? He goes, fucking man, remember that night, the four and a half? That you fucking taped that guy with a fucking amplifier? I go, yeah, was that you? He goes, no, but that was my best friend. I said, is he still alive? He goes, is he fucking alive? He tells people that was the greatest night of his life. <laughs> and, and I said, is he married with kids? He goes, yeah. And I said, and that's still the greatest night of his life? Wow. You should go to a fucking therapist, all right? Just tell <laughs> yeah. him that JJ said it's time for him to get professional fucking help. <clears throat> Dude, that's so legend. Legend. That's awesome. That's oh, awesome. Legend. You know, you don't forget nights like that, man. No. You know? And I don't forget nights like Cardi's either, motherfucker, okay? But it, <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. I'm really glad that we um that we did come out and spend the time because we were that tour was a tough tour. Um, we drove our, our Winnebago broke down in Raton, New Mexico. We had to finish the tour in rent cars. We had to drive all over the United States. I mean, in rent cars with a U-Haul truck with the three roadies. And every show was 
meaningful. In other words, because we, we didn't have a lot of money. So that meant every single place we played had to mean something to the band. Every single show. And we, you know, we drove to Salt Lake City, then we drove to Rotan, New Mexico from Salt Lake City. And that's where when a bagel broke down, we got in the rental cars, we went to Phoenix, Albuquerque, then we went to San Diego, then Riverside, California, then Los Angeles. Then we went back to Salt Lake City to Denver, and then they booked us three nights in Texas, and we drove 22 hours from, from Denver down to Austin, Beaumont, and Houston. Then we drove 36 hours to Manhattan, played the Beacon Theater, and then flew to England and did the Monsters of Rock tour after that in, in, a, in, a, in another rental vehicle. I was looking yeah. for that Austin date, JJ, just last night, just trying to research the date before yeah. I brought it up today. And I saw a list of shows, and there's a hole in the middle and where it, where it, it coincides with the, the, the... Those aren't there that should, you know, I, I tried to put as many dates as I could possibly keep because mm -hmm. I kept thousands of them. And if I missed yes. them, I missed them. But for sure, it was two days before the beacon. So if the beacon's there, it was two days before the beacon. The yeah. point being, though, that... Mm -hmm. So after, and then we do the Monsters of Rock tour, we go to Europe, and, and it's us, and then we join a giant tour with, a loud, with the bottom of the bill. So it's Whitesnake, Ozzy, Motorhead... Thin Lizzy on their absolute last tour with the, the final tour, mm -hmm. Meatloaf, Blue Oyster Cult, and Twisted Sisters on the bottom. Mm, wow. And we and we traveled with this flying circus with a circus for two months. <laughs> and we wind up in Nuremberg, Germany, where Thin Lizzy did its absolutely last performance, wow. the official last performance, which was very emotional for yeah. all for because all the musicians, all of us were on stage. Wow. with them because this was the final performance of Thin Lizzy and you know in those days they had Brian Robertson and um and Scott Gorham on guitars and they were just I, I can't I can get emotional about it you know it was like very heavy and and then we came back to the United States and we still had no tour support and the record label and my manager says I got you a tour with a new band called Queensryche and we said well we heard about them they're from Seattle and they had all this money and they had a big record deal. And I said, well, okay, we'll do the Queen's Rock tour. So we get uh, another, we got another van and we drive to Kansas city. We pull into Kansas city and, and there's Queen's Rock in a silver Eagle tour bus. And we're in a little van, you know, and, and they get out of the, the tour bus and they're like 18 years old and we're like 30. <laughs> and I said to them, how long have you guys been together? And they go a year. And I go, a year? How many shows you played? 12? 12 shows? With who? Through with Ozzy, through with Def Leppard, through with ACDC, through with Metallica. I went, that's it? So I said, wait a minute. Let, let, let's look at the cosmic scale. We're 30, you're 18. We got a freaking winner. We got a, we got a, a, a VW bus that's breaking down. You got a freaking Silver Eagle tour bus. We have no tour support. You have a quarter million dollars tour support. I said, I hope you guys appreciate that you won the lottery here. You know, yeah. to their credit, A, they were a great man. Yeah. B, they were so embarrassed that they had the tour bus that they said, we got extra bunks. You guys can sleep anytime you want. So we would, we, every night, one or two band, band members would sleep in their tour bus and we would wow. revolve it for the whole tour. Oh, wow. And we toured all over the Midwest, went back up to Canada with them and wound up in New York for the final show. And they were the nicest guys in the world. And they were incredibly humble 
that that um, that we all got along so well because I don't begrudge anybody. You know, my attitude is um, if you're better than us, blow us off the fucking stage. We have at it. You know, because if you do that, that means the audience is enjoying their show. We have never been the kind of band that says less likes, take the half the PA. You know, our feeling was, listen, motherfucker, throw it down. We're going to throw it down because our job is to blow you off the stage. That's what we're here to do. We're here to be predatory and to fuck you up. And therefore, you, by all means, should fuck us up, too. So if you can beat us, knock yourself out. Because if you don't, we're going to kick your fucking ass from here to fucking Nairobi. And that was always the predatory nature of Twisted Sister. Because we learned it in the bars because our agent said the only way you get more money is if you blow bands away and more people start to come and see you. So we developed an, a, a routine of audience manipulative entertainment value. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that we're better than a lot of the bands we blew away, but we'll make you think we are because we're performers. Okay. And at the end of the day, who cares? At the end of the day, you're the guy, you got like five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. You've invested in a ticket, see a bunch of bands, you're parking your car it's costing you money. You may have a kid, you got a babysitter. You want the best show you can get. It's my job to give that to you. And if someone else gives that to you, fine. If they blow us away, fine. Of course, nobody ever, nobody ever did because <laughs> we wouldn't allow that motherfucking shit to ever happen. Well, actually, in the book, I do say happened three times out of wow. the thousands and thousands of shows. I concede to three nights in which someone else got a better reaction than us. You know, I do concede in the book. We're talking three nights out of thousands of nights. Yeah. And, and, the, and the gods conspired. And you know what? I'm fine with that. Sure. Yeah, those are pretty good odds. Yeah, sure. I'm fine with that because the audience gets the, the better of it. So who I are have the three a, bands? <clears throat> who are the who three? You have to buy the book. Yeah, right. I, I want to buy the book. So I want to throw one more. You guys did a gig uh, in your stomping grounds, I believe, where you guys did a gig with a guy named Klaus Nomi. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so Klaus, okay, so the Twisted Sister documentary – yeah, we are a twisted fucking sister. Yeah, was directed by Andrew Horn, and the reason why Andrew Horn directed the documentary is because Andrew Horn interviewed me for a documentary on Klaus Nomi, and then oh, wow. after he finished interviewing me, I asked him what he knew about Twisted, and he said, "Well, I know who you are, but I don't know much about you." And after three hours in my house, he said, "You're my next movie." Wow. So Klaus Nomi was a German-born yes opera singer, performance artist, gay opera singer performance. I was like a German version of David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his dream was to come to the United States and to play in the Lower East Side because the Lower East Side was Andy Warhol and, you yes. know, and the dark, deep, you know, like perversion of the, you know, of the Lower East Side. And then his dream would be to be with David Bowie. And he became, he did. Yeah. He came to America mm. he, and uh, he convinced back- Bowie to let him be a backup singer. And he's on Saturday Night Live with yes. Bowie. Okay, so he gets that. So I guess his agent was looking for dates for him to play in the tri-state area. Now, you got to understand something. Twisted Sister may look like the way we look, but we're just a hard-bitten bar band, you know, like a heavy bar band, right? It's rock and roll. We're not not high-minded. It's not opera. It's not alternative. I mean, believe me, I even hate, I hate the phrase alternative because people say, what does it mean? It means alternative to practicing. You know, it means alternative to actually learning what the fuck you're supposed to be doing. It's alternative to singing on key. 
you know, that's what alternative music is. You know, it's like, I don't, I, it's, it's alien to me. Right. You know, it, it's music for people who don't know how to play. That's fine. You know, so is punk for that matter. You know, you want three chords and you want to put a band together. That's great. But, but don't call that shit music. You know, it's really, I don't know what the fuck it is. I don't, I don't really care. I don't care who knows I don't care. I don't give a fuck. The bottom line is, is that they put Klaus Nomi with us. Yeah, that, and I'm thinking, strange, strange I'm thinking if he's not a rock and roll band, he's just going to get blown off the stage. Because if he's going to go up and do opera or some shit, our fans are like blue collar, you know, firemen. What the fuck do they care? They yeah. want, you know, either they're going to put up with us or smoke on the water, but they don't give a shit about you doing German opera. I don't yeah. care how you dress. And so I didn't know what he was going to do. And I walked into his dressing room at this club called The Soap Factory, and I'm in full makeup, so I'm in total drag, you know? And I walk in, but I'm, like, talking like this. Hey, man, how you doing? Like, I am a performer. I'm, you know, how are you? And I go on stage and do my thing. And he looks at me, and he gets up, you know, he's putting his white makeup on, and he's going into, like, some sort of performance mode, like in the dressing room. Wow. Like, the dressing room. What the fuck are you in the dressing room? We're in the same, you know... Yeah. We're performers, right? Which means, hey, what the fuck? How you doing? What the fuck? He kept in this guy, and I went, I just said to myself, this dude's gonna get creamed in about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And he went out on stage and he got creamed. And mm. he they booed him off the stage and he was so traumatized he retired from <laughs> live performances. Our our crowd was just devastating to him. And and he should not have been there. Right. The point is. If he was on the, you know, this was a Jersey bar. He needed to be in a Lower East Side heroin bar. That's where he needed to be. Yeah. Or he needed to be in San Francisco. Or he needed to be in Miami. Or, or, or at a drag queen convention in Columbus, Ohio. But not in a blue collar no. bar where they taught, where, where Twisted is loved because we're doing priest ACDC, Twisted battering you over the head with Sabbath looking the way we're looking, you know, look like women, talk like men, play like motherfuckers. That's totally cool. They get that shtick. They don't get this other shtick. So he was in the wrong place. Yeah. And, and he maybe thought that somehow his, his greatness would matter. It didn't matter. Yeah. Well, he was, and that's, he that's was what, more, that's what more of like a performance artist in front of a hard rock band or a metal band. Right. Well, so let's put it this way. If Bowie was dressed like when he used to wear dresses, yeah. And he performed in front of Twisted Sister playing acoustic songs. He would have been laughed at. Okay? Because yeah. that's not what a bar band crowd that is used to cover bands want. Yeah. You yeah. know? That's, that's just the wrong venue. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean what he's doing is bad. It's just not the place to put. By the way, no. you wouldn't put us in those venues either. No. Right, right. Because they don't want us there. You know, yeah. if you put us in a drag bar or you put us in one of those Lower East Side bars where they have bands that, you know, that, that are so bad that they make Lou, Lou Reed sound like Luciano Pavarotti, you know, you don't, you don't want us either there. Right. You know, God forbid we sing on key and, and play major chords. Like, that's just antithesis of what they want. So it was a mistake. Yeah. And he was he was overwhelmed. By in this state. in this Nomi documentary, there's a clip of you guys playing for just a hot second, and you're in the clip they used is you guys covering of all fucking songs. Draw the line by Aerosmith. 
Mm, nice. And it's in the part where D's going, tack my you know, he's doing the, the Tyler, like in the stratosphere, the little screechy uh-huh. part after the buildup, after the breakdown, blah, blah, blah. And I never even heard D sing like that before. So well, I was you, just like, yeah. what the fuck? So I just recently found a recording from that mm-hmm. we did in 1976 where we're doing a whole Zeppelin medley. And that's why we hired mm-hmm. D, because he could do plant as good mm-hmm. as plant. Mm-hmm. And D once said to me, man, I wish I had a tape of it, but I found it. I have us doing communications breakdown, good wow. times, bad times, how many more times I have the whole first album Badass. and we're, we're blistering through it. And these vocals are dead on Badass, badass, perfect vocals. I've got Aerosmith. I've got us doing, um, uh, God, what is it? Toys in the, I have us doing toys yeah. in the attic. Nice. You know? And I mean, we were a cover band, the, the weirdest song that we ever learned with D because we did weird shit before D was in the band. We did, we had a Rod Stewart singer. So we covered a lot of Rod Stewart and we even did Percy Sledge where a man loves a woman. Cause the guy sang yeah. like Percy Sledge. Yeah. But when D came in the weirdest song and he couldn't believe it when I found it. Cause I remembered it. And I said, you're not going to believe it. We cover an Eagles song. Nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> we cover victim of love uh-huh. because if you hear it, it's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really heavy. You know, um, and I forgot that Kenny, our bass player back in those days, had us falsetto. Mm-hmm. So you go, Victor, love, love, you know, like that. Yeah. So the, the verses are minor and the chorus is major. Yeah. So you, but yeah. the groove that. Dun, 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 and I'm playing slide, which I haven't played slide since Moby Dick was a minnow. So I don't even fucking remember playing slide. <laughs> I'm playing the slide part. And D goes, why did we do that? And I said, we did that because Hotel California was like the biggest goddamn record that year. And we, you know, the idea of an Eagle song was like, no way. Like we wouldn't do a foreigner song. You know, we drew, we drew the line. We go like no foreigner, um, no foreigner at all. But we would, but we did victim of love for about three All right. All right. Wow. Well, thanks for telling us that story about the Klaus Nomi thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt, I really, I've always felt bad about it. It was a mistake. Just never should have. Well, and then he, and then uh, you know, he he died of complications, yeah. AIDS, pneumonia, yeah. and he he, uh, you know, I think that he tried really hard. He was an amazing performer, by the way. It doesn't even matter if you like that kind of shit or not. The guy was like out of his head, uh, talented in his own way, and it doesn't surprise me that Bowie gave him a chance and. Yeah. Uh, him performing on on Saturday Night Live with Bowie, you know, he got to do cool shit. You know what? Can we just say this, though? So back in the Bill Graham film warriors days, he used to put crazy acts together, and most people just accepted it. Everybody was stoned, and everyone went, okay. I saw gospel groups. I mean, I saw the Woody Herman Jazz Orchestra open for Led Zeppelin, okay? I have a poster, which I showed to Robert, of Led Zeppelin and Woody Herman holding his clarinet. And he and, and the New York Times did a review of that show. I was at that show because I had seen Zeppelin's uh, opening act six months earlier. They opened for Iron Butterfly. And here they are. They come back to New York six months later and they're headlining. And the Woody Herman Orchestra is opening for Led Zeppelin. And the review in the New York Times is this whole column. And it's all about Woody Herman. And at the bottom, the guy says, closing the show is an English quartet called Led Zeppelin. <laughs> that was it. Wow. <laughs> 
And we never heard of Woody Herman again. But and did you think Led Zeppelin cried over the fact that that was the review? You were Robert Plant. What did they say about us in the Times? It said they closed the show. <laughs> well, listen, JJ, I don't know how much time we have with you. And I love all these stories and I could keep going forever. But we, you do have a book that we want to talk about. Yes. Uh, the book is called Twisted Business. There it is right there. JJ's holding it up. Um, it is, as JJ describes it, a bizwar, meaning it's basically a combination of memoir slash business sort of self-help know-how kind of book, or at least your experience. And um, one of the things you talk about in that book um, is your philosophy. You turn the word twisted into an acronym of sorts, where each letter of the word twisted uh, starts an element of, of a philosophy that you subscribe to to succeed. So there's uh, T is uh, tell me tenacity, tenacity, inspiration, wisdom, uh, stability, wisdom. trust, excellence. There you go. So what, and then you go on to explain each of those. Now, one of the things that I noticed that wasn't in there is luck. So I wanted to ask you. Do you believe in luck at all in, in the world of success or is it, is it so minor that, you know, you don't feel that it factors into the equation? What's, what's your perspective on luck? Luck is a byproduct of excellence and discipline. Okay. So it's actually there because, because we, had the, we had the good fortune of being able to take advantage of a right situation at the right time because we were prepared for it. So do I call that opportunity luck? It could be. I mean, in as much as unlucky things happen all the time, sure. when, when, when the right person at the right time shows up at the right place, if you can deliver at that nexus moment, then chances are you'll have some success. So, uh, you know, that cliche of I'd rather be lucky than good. The truth is you'd rather be good and lucky because if you're good and then the opportunity comes up, you will be able to take advantage of that opportunity. So of course, I believe in the, I believe in the confluence of circumstance and coincidence. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. believe in that. Um, but again, if we weren't prepared, it wouldn't have mattered. So, you know, again, what does it matter? If you're not ready to take advantage of it, then all the good fortune in the world doesn't matter. Now, look, I know people who have had really lucky things happen in life, like really lucky, and they weren't prepared for it. You know, one, my, my, I had a bass player in high school whose girlfriend, Linnea Heacock, she was, we were all taking LSD one afternoon in Central Park, and we were all like having, we had water guns, we're shooting each other with water pistols in the summer of 1969. And who's walking across the fountain but Buck Henry, the director? And he sees Linnea Heacock and he goes, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. I want you to be in my next movie. It sounds like bullshit, right? So he does this movie called Taking Off and Buck Henry directed it. It's a major motion picture. Don't remember who co-starred in it. Linnea Heacock is the daughter. OK, she is in the movie. And um, and, uh, you know, the movie comes out and I saw Linnea Heacock a couple of years later. Wow, Linnea, what a great opportunity. She goes, oh, I hated acting and I couldn't wait for it to end. And, you know, so I did it once. Yeah, she did, I did a commercial after that. And I didn't I didn't want it. And I think of all the people that are desperately looking for a shot. Like, yeah, desperately. They just want they want they just want to be in a commercial. They just want to have two lines in a movie. And here's this girl is given a starring role because she's running around Central Park with a water pistol at the right time. So. <laughs> 
Okay. So again, that's like winning a lottery ticket. And I wouldn't exactly uh, suggest to people to wait around and buy the lottery ticket. Or I watch American Idol or The Voice. And I go, what a bunch of bullshit. Number one, those shows could care less about the artists. They're game shows. That's all they are. They're game shows with the premise that someone's going to get a record deal, but it's a game show. So none of the people who are the judges could give a rat's ass as to whether or not anybody's talented. It's a fucking game show. And that's all it is. So taking away the game show element, the winner whose life has changed forever. It's Ah, this is the make or break moment. My father's dying of tuberculosis. My sister died of breast cancer. You know, it's just all this fucking bullshit. Probably horrible, horrible stories. Sure, they're true. Here's the part that kills me. They get the award and they go, I want to thank my fans for sticking with me for 15 weeks. You know, and I'm sitting there going like, (laughs) you know, like, what the fuck? You know? Call them fans. I mean, you know, well, of course you do because, because, you know, first of all, when you're young and stupid, You know, you think that fame lasts forever. People forget that you rent fame, you don't own it. But that's a really high-minded philosophy right there from somebody who's rented fame and owned it and lost it and re-rented it. So that's that's a number one stupid. Nobody ever educates these kids as to really what they're getting into. The book is about music business because it's two words. It's music and business. And most people forget the business part. And most people in the music industry hope that you forget the business part so they can fuck you every way they possibly can fuck you. Absolutely true. The egos of the executives make the egos of the musicians look like nothing. I mean, as much as lead singers are a creation by God to make the world a more difficult place to live in. <laughs> you know, there's, there, there is a reason why there's jokes like, what's the difference between a lead singer and a terrorist? And the answer is because you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> the fact is, is that, is that executives are even worse. And musicians, so musicians don't pay attention to the business. So look at the difference between West Coast metal bands and East Coast metal bands. West Coast, Motley, Warren, Bob, Poison, dude, 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 dude. New York, Gene, Paul, me. Business guys, don't get high, don't drink, are aware of how fucked up everything is. Probably will get fucked, but we'll figure it out. That's the difference. Yeah. That is the difference. Kiss, Gene and Paul, focus like fucking, you know, had a tough time, went through a lot of shit. Totally focused, never took their eye off the ball business-wise. Yeah. Same thing with Twisted. These, these guys, these California bands during the whole hair thing, we went out to California, we're hanging with them. Nice guys, you know? But like, dude, and dude, and let's party, dude. And we're like 10 years older than you, and I don't do drugs and drinks, so I got nothing to say to you, you know? And yeah. knock yourself out. It's a whole different philosophy. New York people are way more pragmatic, faster, smarter. I mean, this is, you know, maybe that's a generalization, but I just think New York is an amazing place to grow up in. And I grew up in a, in a New York household that my father was a jewelry salesman. So I was on 47th street with him. I was on 48th street buying guitars. You know, that's like a guys and dolls freaking shit show. You know, that's like fast moving, fast talking hustlers everywhere. You know, and you grow up in that environment. You take the subway every day in New York City. You know, you're mixing with every human being on the planet Earth, rich, poor. It doesn't matter if you're bulletproof. 
And you come out of that world and add to that my drug dealing, which happened in that world. Now you develop a very thick skin and you develop a business mentality. So I had a business mentality, but I did not join the band to be a business person. I joined the band as a guitar player and thought, you know, I'm entering a world I don't know about, the bar scene. I did not know how the bar scene worked. The bar scene was a preset situation. I didn't know. It wasn't the scene in New York City. The scene in New York City was a very disorganized bunch of guys, you know, even the dolls. Like, they just they picked up where you could play in a club. There was nothing concentrated. The, the, the bar scene, mob guys owned it. There were rules of the game. And you had to play by the rules. So I got thrown into that at the age of 20. And all I did was watch and said, wow, you know, so here I am not doing drugs, totally straight now after five years of drug use and drug dealing and drug addiction, all that shit, totally straight. Good news, I'm straight. The bad news is I told my mother I'm gonna be a transvestite. I don't know which one was worse, but you know, so <laughs> I went, mom, guess what? I'm not doing hair anymore. I'm wearing women's clothing. Ah, <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so I'm in this band and this band falls apart because of alcohol. And I go and explain this in the book. Yeah. Why do I don't drink? I think, first of all, I hate the taste of alcohol. Just, I just hate the taste of it. It's nothing to do philosophically. God, this is not religious. I just think alcohol, every version of it, tastes like the worst cough medicine ever created. And I never understood why anybody drinks the shit. Because, like, I don't care if it's a 20,000-year-old Scott, it still tastes like crap. And beers, I've had six in my life, and they taste like carbonated piss water. So I don't understand that either. But, but having said that, Okay, so everybody else in the band drinks. Okay, they're all thinking they're Keith and Woody and Mick and drunk and, you know, like Dudley Moore. And, you know, oh, and, you know, for a while, everything's okay. Oh, they're all drunk, and I'm just looking every night, thinking, okay, well, we're working six nights a week, five shows a night, and we're making all the shows, you know, so I guess they're, they're surviving their hangovers. But eventually, it takes a toll, and eventually the singer pulled a gun out of the drummer in a bar fight, drunk, and that ended that band. And then the replacement guys who came in, they were methadrine addicts, and that ended that band. And I got fed up with all of it. Yeah. And I said, I can't handle people do drugs anymore or drink. So if I can't find straight guys, I don't think I can continue. And when D came to me through my agent, I said to him, just let me ask you a question. You don't drink and do drugs, do you? He goes, fuck no. I said, no, no, really, seriously, don't lie to me to get in the band. You really don't. He goes, no, man, never, never in my life. I'm like, you're my guy because okay. because it's going to take a lot of work and I, I can't handle that shit. And then when ba the, our bass player left, Kenny left, who I love dearly, wonderful man, great musician, but he was an alcoholic and he needed to leave because working in a bar as an alcoholic is not the best place to work when you're an alcoholic. Sure. I think we we'll all agree. Yeah. Not a good place to work. He needed to save himself, joined AA, and we hired Mendoza, who was his roadie for about six months prior, wow. after the dictators. I said to Mark, you don't drink the drugs. fuck no. I went, you're my guy. Now, you have a band that's basically straight in a, in a business that's basically fucked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I was going to ask you, because you point out very early in the book that, in fact, I think the quote is, there is no place for drugs and alcohol in, in rock and roll, or at least in, in your opinion, in, the, in, the, in a successful rock and roll band. So you've got, in, in, and to an extent, you can manage your own band, but you're dealing in an industry that's surrounded with drugs and alcohol. Um, so 
I don't. So this leads me to a question that I had. I wanted to know what was it like working with Pete Way, who had a hand in producing your first record? Because he was, you know, he's Dudley, he's Dudley Moore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, no. Let's put it straight out there. Yeah, he's yeah. Drunk all the time. Right. And and not only not only did he drink all the time, but his wife wouldn't give him money because he would blow in on alcohol. So she would never give him money. So she'd give him a check and he would show up at recording sessions. He goes, God, I got a check. Would you cash a five quid check so I could have money to drink? Okay. So, okay. So here's the thing about Pete. A number one, beautiful guy. Rest in peace. Yeah. He, when people ask me, what is the job of a producer in the rock world? I say, unlike a movie world or TV world where a producer is the fundraiser, in the world of music and rock, a producer can be anywhere from a vibe guy to a George Martin guy and anything in between. You know, you can either know everything about every button, every switch, and and can write and play instruments and write with the Beatles to Rick Rubin who just shows up and goes, I guess I'm Rick Rubin and I don't like the way that hi-hat sounds. You know what I mean? Like, or, I mean, I'm not, all I know is that it can be many things. So when the president of the label said Pete Way, we were so happy to be signed. We were like, okay, fine. Yeah. Whatever Pete is, whatever he is, he's either in there, he's not, he's obviously a bass player. And Mendoza loved his bass playing. He was a UFO. We're all UFO fans, right? Yeah, sure. So Pete was, when he did show up, he was pretty inebriated and he was a vibe guy, but he was, a vibe, you know, he was like one of these lovable British guys who got along with all the press guys. They all loved him. So it was to our benefit to have Pete, you know, plus he was very close to Motorhead. He yeah. brought Fast Eddie and, you know, Lemmy came into the scene and, and, you guys, and took us you, you guys got Motorhead's endorsement as well. And yeah. not everybody gets Motorhead's yeah. endorsement. Lemmy fell in love with the band early on and wound up introducing us at the Marquee Club and, and stamped us with the Motorhead seal of approval, which then gave us credibility. You know, they talk about the new wave of British heavy metal. What about the new wave of, of American metal? Because us and Y&T, were both exploded into the London bar scene at the same time, yes. and both were uh, both were uh, were taken under their wing by the British press guys who fell in love with us. And Y&T certainly was a great band, and Twisted. So we were the two American bands over there, while all the British new wave of British bands were, were coming over to you know, to the U.S. Um, so in 1980, um, I met P. Way for the first time in London, and. He introduced me to Steve Harris and and, he, and Steve Harris had just done the killer's demo. So so Pete said to me, JJ, I, I think Steve will pick up tonight and take us to the Hammersmith to see us at Hammersmith. So Steve, Steve came by the hotel, picked me up, handed me a cassette. I still have the cassette of killers. You know, they had just finished wow. doing doing it. And we hung out and I saw the connection between Iron Maiden and UFO. And I realized that it's important to maintain those connections because England is such a small country that it's important for that social network. You know, the same way that the CBGB's network was, you know, Blondie and Talking Heads yeah. and the press guys were all like that. You know, whether you like them or not, that's the point of all this is that you need to understand the politics of the of the era. So the politics of the era was very, very key in keeping the band and Twisted Sisters profile so high in Kerrang! and Sounds Magazine. And Pete Way was certainly a part of that. 
Yeah. And he was, he was wonderful, but he did, you know, Mendoza did most of the work. Mendoza and D did most of the work because Pete was late. Right. He, he showed up later. Yeah. He didn't show up. Yeah. Right. Or he was, or he was drunk, you know, and, and I don't enjoy this. I'm not trying to disparage him. I loved him. Sure. I loved him. I wish he wasn't there. You know what I mean? I wish it wasn't like that. But it was fun. You know, in those days, it was humorous. You know, before it gets tragic, it's always funny. Sure. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's always in the, in the early days of these kinds of things. It's amusing and funny. And people tell stories about it. It's the end game. That's the tragedy. Right. In these stories. And and also in the book um, and, and part of the reason for writing the book is and people may not know this. Um, that besides being the founding member and the guitar player of Twisted Sister, you were the manager and uh, obviously had to have a very good business sense. And that business sense must have had to have gone into overdrive when Stay Hungry exploded, because now you're on a whole different level. So yeah. was there ever a point where uh, during that tidal wave of success where the management the management part of the job became so overwhelming that you struggled with it or thought about have you know having someone help you with it or it kept you awake at night or because it's got to be leaps and bounds from can't stop rock and roll to stay hungry if you're the manager of twisted sister okay so here's 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 the deal so from 73 to 70 73 74 early 75 the management was either another person or the drummer, Mel, who put the band together, okay? The, after that was over, I took over. So now I'm managing the band from 75, 76, 77, 78, 79. During this period of time, the band becomes gigantic in the bar scene. Now we're working, we're playing to clubs that hold up to 5,000 people a night, working five nights a week. And, and I'm managing this band and I'm not getting any sleep because I'd go to bed and then the phone would ring because the truck broke down and this one's fighting with this guy and this one's fighting with this guy and the fights with the band, internal shit. And the, and the club owners were mob guys and I'm dealing with that. And then record deals are coming up and it was overwhelming. And I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And I called a friend of mine named Joe Gerber and I said, listen, man, you want to get in the music business. I need some help right now. I need, I need, I need to get better and I need to take a break and, and I need just to not deal with anything for like two or three months. And I need you to take over. And he comes over to my house. I said, here, this is the agent's name. Blah, blah, blah. He's a really smart guy. And I said, take over the business for me on a day-to-day -day basis. I need to heal. So he took over um, the, the nuts and bolts of the everyday bullshit that comes up in business. And then I got better and I was feeling better. And then and then I'm looking around going, okay, so now what do we do? We're hitting our heads against the wall, failure after failure after failure after failure. We, and so we tried to look for another manager. We finally found a guy named Mark Puma. And we bring Mark Puma on. And, and now at this point, I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Um, I can't do both. Like you ask Mick Fleetwood, how do you manage Fleetwood Mac? He's the manager. The truth is he didn't manage Fleetwood Mac. The truth is he brought so many people in to do so many different jobs that he may have sat there ultimately and looked at it, but he wasn't doing that. You couldn't, plus he was doing so much cocaine. If you read any of the books, you understand he couldn't, but he was always credited as being the man. So I brought in Mark Puma and Mark Puma then came in as manager. And then what happened was um, when not everything fell apart at the end of 88 and everything crashed and burned, I looked at the totality of the destruction of the band, which I go into in depth in the book. And I look at all the reasons why it crashed and burned. And among them was the fact that I had walked away 
from the management side of it because I decided, well, I can't do this and be a rock star at the same time. I have to, I, you have to be one or the other. I decided to be a rock star. But when it all crashed and burned, I said, um, I should never have let that happen. And if it ever comes back again, it will never happen again because I can't trust anybody else to be able to put the reins on this shit. And so the band crashed and burned and, and D and I went into bankruptcy. Yeah. And we lost everything. So, and, so, so to be clear, you weren't managing the band during the, the stay hungry era. No. Okay. Gotcha. No. Go ahead. In fact, I, in fact, I was walking away from it. Right. Okay. Because, because D was, you know, D has written about, D has called himself an asshole, an idiot for doing certain things. Gene Simmons just recently did this whole thing about how he was an asshole. So D got drunk with power. The manager was not capable of controlling it. D even blames the manager for not controlling him, which is an interesting, it's revisionist. Yeah. In a way, it's revisionist. It's like because of you, I was able to get become an idiot. You know, it's like no, you were an idiot, and that's what happened. But D and I, you know, we 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 fell apart. Yeah, so I, we completely fell apart. So so the only hope to ever bring it back was piecing these parts together. If we weren't able to reconstitute, it never would have happened. And so over years, over a 12-year period, I immediately took over after that manager was gone and immediately reinstated myself, renegotiated the record deal, um, uh, contacted the record label, started doing packaging with projects because the band was disbanded. But um, I immediately put myself back into the business mode. Everyone else had left. You know, D left, D quit, AJ quit. Me and Mark were left. We fired Eddie because Eddie colluded with D to fire me at the end. This is in the book. And we never, it never could happen because I fire people. Nobody fires me. You know, I'm the executioner. You can't execute the executioner. And the day that D tried to execute the executioner, Mendoza looked at D and went, you're fucking kidding, right? Like, you really are fucking like, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're really fucking kidding, right? Like, and that's, so there was a stalemate. So, so, so D goes, okay, I'm gone. I'm out. I went, fine. Fuck out of here, you know. Yeah. We had already been told by a record label to fire him. Our record label and our agent, booking agent, told me to fire him already because he was destroying everything. And this is a guy that didn't do drugs and alcohol. And this is how this is how poisonous and toxic it got. It got really toxic. And when it ended, I said, I said, well, I'm just gonna blow the whole fucking thing up. I'd rather blow, I'd rather see the whole thing blow up. And I blew it up and to the point where. I blew it up and, and then me and D were sued for a lot of money uh, for reasons that are not unknown to us. Like this was not a secret. Yeah. We knew exactly. Let me, let me put it to you this way. There's this philosophy I have in life. There's three kinds of people in this world. There's the people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen, and the people who go, what happened? Yeah. And most people go, what happened? And I always swore I'd either make it happen or watch it happen but I'm never going to say what happened. So I knew exactly where this whole train was going. All right. And it went right off a fucking cliff and I was happy to watch it go on. I said, let me just take this whole thing down 
So the whole thing went down. And then I'm broke and Dee's broke. And he winds up working um, as a receptionist in a recording studio. And I wind up working overnight to the pool hall. <laughs> and this is only two years after Twisted Sister was, you know, one of the biggest bands on earth. This is one of the compelling stories in the book, you know. So, and slowly we piece our lives together independently. He yeah. writes a song for Celine Dion, a Christmas song that's a hit. Mm -hmm. Right. I get Seven Dust produce their album, which is almost platinum, and yeah. manage them. And my career is going up like this. Dee's career is going up like this, but we're not talking to each other. Yeah. And then eight years after the band broke up and 20 years to the day that I hired them, we had a meeting for one reason, and that was just to set the record straight clear the air, as you said in the book. I had nothing to do with the band's future, zero. I had no expectation. Right. And we spent hours in my kitchen. And it was incredibly tough and brutal. And we both leveled shit at each other that I would only say that a therapist would, would give us an award for being that honest. Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And, and you say throughout the book that it was no secret within the band that, that you guys hated each other. And, it, and this wasn't something that was born out of jealousy after the success of Stay Hungry. It sounds like you guys kind of hated each other from the start. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it, but to, but my question is, what made you guys hate each other? And I don't think it, it doesn't sound like it was just you and D, but the, the band in, as a whole was just a very dysfunctional group of people with a lot of animosity towards each other. And I wonder why is that? Well, first of all, the band loved each other. The band respected each other on one level very much because the band wouldn't have worked as hard as it did if it didn't. Okay. So I've seen real hatred break up companies. Um, and, and that didn't happen here. What happened, uh, there was a, you know, you have to remember that me, D, and Eddie joined forces in 76 and the band, you know, Mendoza came in at the end of 78. So the three of us were shoulder to shoulder until 84 for thousands of performances because we all looked at each other and said, without you, I can't be me. So regardless of how we may have felt, the fact is that we depended on each other and our professionalism and the unbelievable dedication that one takes to make it because the amount of work is overwhelming. You can't go to work every day if you, if you don't, fundamentally respect the person that you're with. And also, as my wife has pointed out to me on a number of occasions, she goes, you really all did love each other. You just didn't know how to behave to one right. another. Yeah. And that's really true. Yeah. That really is true because we do love each other. You know, Eddie's son tragically committed, you know, AJ dies and it shakes the band up. Eddie's son tragically commits suicide and Dee's mother dies in a tragic car accident within a, two months of each other. And all of us show up at all the services, you know, because of that. You know, Dee's brother-in-law was murdered in broad daylight in a, in a hit, in a professional hit in, in, in uh, 2003. 
And, you know, we all went to the service, you know, for that. It took 10 years for them to find the guy who killed, killed him. They finally did. So we were bound together by tragic events. And, of course, 9-11 occurs and totally tra- binds the band because we all lost somebody. You know, you, you're not from New York City and not lose somebody in 9-11. I mean, you just don't. You know, Eddie had a sister-in-law and a nephew in the two buildings. They both got out. My daughter's third grade teacher's husband died. He was Kenneth Fitzgerald. Everyone knew somebody. And so and so when MTV did the behind the music thing and, and portrayed the band in its worst, you know, like how much we hated each other. Iron, the irony of that broadcast was two weeks after that was broadcast, 9-11 occurred. And when we were asked by Eddie Trunk to do a benefit, I called everybody up and they went, done, like done, like enough of this bullshit. Not enough of this pettiness between us all. Yeah. This is a, something that's so much bigger than all of us. You know, what the hell does it matter if I don't like you, you don't like me, I don't like your guitar tone. I mean, a, everyone kind of grew up really fast. And so when the band rekindled itself and came back, there was like a whole new view of ourselves. Like it was really gorgeous to watch it. It was like men, boys becoming men with families which, mean, which we didn't have when we were younger. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, how's your grand, how your kids, your grandkids, like all oh, this shit. And, and, uh, and, and then the world said to Twisted, we missed you. We want you. And then our popularity exploded. And then we did the Christmas record and it just got better and it got better and better and better and better. And it got better to the end. You know, AJ's death hurt us in a lot of ways. It just personally because we loved him. And he was to us like John Bonham was to Led Zeppelin. Like you almost can't imagine. People don't realize what kind of a monster fucking drummer he is, but he was I, one of the greatest I, drummers I, in the world. I mean, I agree a world, world I agree 100%. class drummer, right up there yeah. with Neil Peart. Yes. You know, I mean, Mike Portnoy will tell you. Yes. And Mark Portnoy is like, Mike Portnoy is like the most, you know, decorated drummer in the world right now. And he became AJ's replacement. I know. And he'll tell you there was nobody like AJ. Period. Correct. Yeah. And Portnoy is phenomenal. He's not AJ. He's Portnoy. And to Portnoy's credit, why would Portnoy join a band unless it wasn't a great fucking band? Because Portnoy is is just a great drummer who goes and plays with the most world-class musicians in the world. And yet he grew up with Twisted Sisters. So did Steve yes. By. They used to sneak into bars together when they were 15 in Long Island. So... When AJ died and I was at the memorial service the next day and Portnoy was there because AJ replaced Portnoy and Adrenaline Mob. Talk about synergy. Yeah, yeah. And we're crying in the dressing room. And, you know, the minute AJ's death was announced, my phone lit up with drummers around the world going, can I replace him? And I said to my assistant, anyone who calls up and asks to be asked, please make sure I never speak to those motherfuckers again. Like anybody who calls up while AJ's body is not even cold. And asked to replace them, just make sure I know who these people are so I can tell them to go fuck themselves. Yeah. So I'm sitting there crying in the dressing room with the adrenaline mob. I was going to go out and do a song with them. And, and, and Portnoy's there. And we had met at certain times beforehand. And he's crying. And he looks at me and goes, what are you going to do? And I said, dude, I, I don't know. Maybe we're not going to go on. And he said, well, look, if you go on, if you need help, just call me. That's all. Just let you know. It would be an honor, but that's up to you. And I went back to the guys in the band at AJ's Wake, and I said, you're not going to believe this. Report my and we went, wow. And, and, you know, we had changed as human beings. 
to like people that love people. And we did benefits all the time, you know, did benefits for Dee's charity, did benefits for Mark's charity, did my daughter's an eye disease, did benefits for her charity. It's a whole different world, man. I mean, if, if, if 9-11 hadn't happened and we hadn't reformed and done the Christmas record and repaired our relationships, I don't know where this would all have been. But the 20 years since that has happened now, it's almost 20 years, yeah. has been some of the greatest years of the band's life, you know? And it has allowed me an enormous perspective to right. look back at everything and to come up with what I consider rules of engagement, you know, as far as not just the music business, although it's applicable to every genre in the music business because it doesn't matter what genre it is. It could be hip hop, it could be pop rap. Right. It doesn't matter. The rules are the rules, are the rules, but there are also rules of life. So in that way, it is Tony Robbins ish, you know, for a lack of a better way to kind of. No, that tell that lets everyone know what, what you're talking about. So, yeah. and, and it also, it also begs the question because the point as, as you, one of the points you make in the book is you've come back numerous times, whether it's in your professional life or your personal life, just when you think you're out of the picture, JJ somehow rebounds. So does, does that leave any room in the future for a possible Twisted Sister reunion in, in terms of an album or a tour? Because I know if anyone's learned to never say never, it's you. Yeah, but does never say never have to apply to them is, is also a question. It can also apply to everybody's personal life. So, so I've had three marriages. I've come back from prostate cancer. I've come back from two heart operations. My daughter has an eye disease, which is the leading cause of blindness among young girls in, the, in, in America. These are other issues. And, and it's and it's confronting all of these all of these uh, things piece by piece that you deal with it. So I don't know if the band's reunion is indicative of the philosophy any more than any other thing is indicative of the philosophy. You know, D has reinvented himself on a number of occasions, and he's reinvented himself as a solo artist, and he loves to do that. Yeah. And and if he does it, and that's all he does, then that's what he does. You know, and Mendoza has a new. He has a show, he has a, he has a, a YouTube show and a radio show, and he loves doing that and he's doing his thing. And I do, you know, and, and I like doing motivational speaking to corporations. I enjoy it. And I don't necessarily think that playing it matters one way or the other, you know? I, and we were all together a year and a half ago having dinner. The whole, you know, me, age, me, D, Eddie, and Mark with our wives and girlfriends. We never discussed it. At dinner. Wow. So maybe that's an indication of where that's at. I mean, it never came up. Not yeah. one person said, so why don't we rehearse? Yeah, when's the next gig? Different. Right. Didn't like, nobody, nobody, you know, I walked, I remember saying, but I said, wow, no one brought it up. It was just about how the kids, yeah. you know, and what have you been doing and blah, 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 blah. And, and we, we, we reunited to an autograph session, like an autograph thing and one of those, you know, celebrity autograph things. Like, but you would think that conversation would come up, right? You would think it would come up. Yeah. No, it never came up. Wow. And D is constantly saying no. And, and when people say to me, D goes, no, no, no. I said, D believes what he believes the day he says he, the day he says it. I, that's always been D. So if he says it today, he believes it today. And, and if it happens to be forever, then so be it. I, you know, when I was 50 and I wanted the band to come back together, it's because I used to dream about it. Well, the band got back together again and we wound up playing 125 of the biggest festival shows in the world. I mean, we headlined just about every one of them. Massive. I made a Christmas record and it was 
very successful. Everybody said, you're crazy. Now every fucking heavy metal band has a Christmas song out, yeah. you know, because we did it. Everyone thought we were nuts. We made a successful thing of it. Um, I don't have anything to prove anymore. So if I never play on stage again, it won't make any difference to me. You know, well, you're not you're not going to remember this, JJ, but I, I, uh, I actually called you or in the early 2000s. I found your number that had something to do with the, um, it, you know, I, I found out you were managing bands and I had a band uh, that was doing pretty, pretty good. What, what I thought was pretty good. And uh, I thought that you would be a good fit for whatever reason, but I actually spoke to you on the phone and uh, it was a cold call. It was no introduction. Hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm just calling. I, who is this? You know, so I felt, I felt weird. Like I was bugging you at home or something, but um, you were. when I found out you were managing bands, I, I was somehow I, I, I told myself, it's like, wow, well, Seven Dust is doing pretty good. And I'm not surprised when I found out you were their manager, just for whatever reason. I didn't know any background. I didn't know um, your level, your IQ or what you, you know, I just knew that, you know, these crazy fucking biker looking dudes from New York uh, made this entire thing called Twisted Sister happen and be a, a global phenomenon. I was like, and I'm a huge fan. That was probably a big part of it. I was a huge fan. But, uh, you know, I, 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 J.J. French will tell me what to do. I will follow the words of J.J. French. Anyway, um, you pretty much told me to get lost, but that, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but I, I want to I wanna try to... Uh, we've been taking. Was I really not nice to you? You you were you were not not nice to me. It was a cold call, man. I was. I just found you're not. I'm going to call JJ French. Fuck it. I'm going to. Now you know why I say that? Because strangely enough, um, a very super super super. I'm not going to mention who, but a super famous rock star, one of the most legendary in the world. His manager lives in my apartment building. Just coincidental. Okay. Yeah. Just coincidentally. This guy's one of the most legendary, famous rockers in the world. And this, his manager lives in my building. Okay. And about 20 years ago, I had an idea of how to do a hip hop version of a song that his artist wrote, but I didn't know who the manager was. And someone said, the manager's name is so-and-so send him an email and, and just let them know you want to do this and try to just kind of get their blessing. So I send this guy an email. I said, you don't know me, JJ French, Twisted Sister, but I happen to have an idea for a hip hop version of a song that your artist writes. And I just want to let you know, I was told maybe to send you an email, let you know. And, and the person wrote back a very nice email and said, well, thank you for letting me know and good luck and let me know how it goes. And nothing happened. So flash forward 20 years, I find out this person lives in my apartment building. What are the chances? It can live yeah. anywhere on the planet Earth. And they, the person lives in my building. So one day I'm in the lobby and I say to the doorman, do you ever see this so-and-so guy? And the guy goes, he's never here. Next thing you know, the guy comes in the building, walks right by me, goes to the elevator bank. I walk up to him. I said, hey, man, I'm not a stalker. I live in this building. I said, and, but I'm so-and-so, so-and-so. And about 20 years ago, I sent you an email asking you, if I can have your blessing on having an artist do a hip hop track of your artist's songs. And he looked at me and he goes, was I nice to you? 
<laughs> and I went, yeah, you wrote me back a very nice email. And he goes, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so no, it wasn't. Apparently, were, I wasn't particularly as nice as this guy was. You know? Well, you weren't. You you weren't. You weren't uh, like I didn't like hang up crying or anything. So you know, okay. uh, I, I mean, I I have tougher skin than than than. All right, I, but, I, but I obviously was short with you at this point, right? Well, kind of it was like I keep saying, it was a cold call, and I just I I was trying to get gain some ground with with a project that I had, and I thought that you you could help me and. And I think that it, uh, I just I, I did my spiel, and you just you didn't have you didn't have time for me at that moment. So it you were, you were probably interrupting dinner. I didn't want to <laughs> interrupt dinner. You know, you know the all- three great you know the three greatest quotes of management. Uh, Irving Azoff says that the thing he hates about management is he has to give the artist eighty percent of what he earns. That I think is pretty funny. Okay, um, Bill Curvisley, who's Judas Priest's manager and Robert Plant's manager, says. The art of management is doing the unnecessary for the unappreciative, which I, which I think is pretty funny. That's good. And, and, and I say managing an artist is like trying to put a saddle on an atomic bomb, holding on until the motherfucker blows up in your face. You know? So uh, it's, a thank, you know, it's a thankless job. It's yeah. a really thankless job. And, 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 I'm, and I'm okay with it in the band because you know why? Because um, if, if I don't make the money, I don't make money. And so I'm there fighting for them. Yeah. And they know that I fight for them. Yeah. You got to get your points. You got to get your percentage. You got to. Yeah. But yeah. they got to. And the more money that I can make for them, the more money I get. So I, I, I you know, I, I won't handle any other bands. I mean, I've done it and, and I won't do it anymore. Yeah. It's an incredibly uh, stressful gig. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes a lot out of you. And at this point in my life, I don't want to travel anymore. You know, I just really don't. That's another issue about playing. You know, playing is hard. You know, what is uh, Roger Daltrey says that it's two hours of heaven, and, uh, two hours of heaven, and 22 hours of hell. Yeah. And you pay him to travel. Yeah. Yeah. The traveling part sucks. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard that numerous times on this show. Our oh, man. It's a long I mean, day. It's a long day. Well, how about this? Our agent about 10 years ago books us in a weekend, Thursday night in the Arctic Circle, Sunday, Oklahoma. <laughs> At Rock Okay. Now, understand. This is like a Ray Charles booking. This is like put the map of the world out there, give two darts and throw them at the wall. Yeah. So on Thursday, you're playing the Arctic Circle in, 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 in Norway, in, in Nordcap, which is the northernmost part of, of, of continental fucking Europe, 250 miles in the Arctic Circle. And Sunday, you're playing at Rock So you look at the map and you go, okay, to get there, to get there, which is like six time zones away, is three, four flights and a bus ride. So it's like Newark to Oslo, Oslo to Tromsø, Tromsø to Laxell, Laxell to Nordkamp in a bus drive to get to this point. Why are we there? Because two weeks of the year, 10,000 people go there to drink and watch the sun not set. That's the whole reason why they go there. It's called endless party, endless summer, some shit, midnight summer jam. And the and whoever it is got this idea that they needed to be entertained by rock acts. So they hired us in Deep Purple to play to 10,000 of the drunkest fucking people you have ever seen in your life who all they do is drink and pass out and drink and pass out and drink and pass out and walk to another teepee. They have these teepees like 
teepees. They drink and pass out. Then they go to these fjords, they get in these party boats, they drink and they pass out. Then they come out to the lawn where we're playing and they drink and pass out. So we go there and it takes us 24 hours to get there. We sleep, we wake up and we play at two o'clock in the morning and the sun is up like right in the sky because the sun doesn't set in July. Sun's up in the sky. So I'm looking at D, we're playing and there's just people, they can't clap. They're so fucked up that, all, that they can't even go like, they can't even raise their hands to clap in between songs because they're just on their ass, you know? But we're getting paid a lot of money, which is okay, right? So we, can go. So we play. And we finish at four o'clock in the morning. We immediately go to the airport for a six o'clock flight that goes from uh, goes from Laxell to Tromso, Tromso to Norway, uh, to Oslo, Oslo to Newark, Newark to Oklahoma City. We get to Oklahoma City 24 hours later, 110 degrees. It's 55 degrees in the Arctic Circles, 110 Norway in, in, in Oklahoma. We do a show and we go sleep, wake up, do a show. And then we get on two flights and fly back the following what, Monday. What year so, was that? What year? 2010. Yeah. Okay. 2009. So, so, you know, we're like 60 years old, you know? So we, so we do this shit and we do that shit and, and, and I come home and my wife looks at me and goes, how do you feel? And I, I looked at her and I said, you know what? I used to pay money in high school to get this fucked up. And I have no, I have no desire to feel this fucked up. It took me about a month for my clock to adjust to what we had gone through in five days. So to a fan, go, whoa, man, that's really great. You go to the Arctic Circle, you play fucking big rock festival, and you go to Oklahoma, and that's great. No, it ain't fucking great. It ain't enough fucking oh. money. It's just like, you know, at my age, it's sex prescription drugs and rock and roll, my friend. You know, it's like a whole other... It's another world, you know? So when you're 20, okay. Yeah. You know, but look at all his bands now. I mean, we're all 60. Yeah. yeah. Or 70. Yeah. Or 80 when it comes to the Rolling Stones. Sure. Yeah. So when people say to me, is rock dead? I say, well, it's not dead, but do me a favor. Tell me a 25-year-old rock star, because I don't see him on the Billboard charts. I mean, when I was 17, the Beatles Stones, Who's That, Floyd, Queen, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, they were all 25. Do you know that? When I was 17, they were 25. Yeah. Think yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. Think about that. All these legends were 25 years old when I was 17. Unbelievable. So now you're a 17-year-old kid and you want a rock band. You're seeing guys who are 16, 70 years old. Yeah. yeah. You're, not going, you're not going to uh, to Giant Stadium and seeing a 25-year-old rock band. True doesn't exist yeah. so you pick up a billboard magazine and you go show me a 25 year old rock band in the top 100 show me just show me i'll show, show me because i want you to prove me wrong i'm an idiot i'm telling you that rock is in bad shape show me all those 25 year old rockers and you'll show me imagine dragons like that's the only rock band in the top 100 rock yeah and i go okay i rest my case yeah. so I'm not saying it's dead, but what I'm saying is, is that there's a lot of 25 year old hip hop artists, a yeah. lot of 25 year old female pop stars, a lot of 25 year old K-pop stars, a lot of 25 year old country stars. There's yeah. just no rock stars. Yeah. Right. Got a point. Yeah. So yeah. if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. JJ, it's been uh, an incredible, incredible uh, discussion we've had uh, with you today. And uh, yeah. I could, I could just, uh, you know, listen to you talk forever. I would love to like uh, 
completely fanboy out on you some more. Um, I've been playing music my whole life, and and Twisted was one of my biggest influences. I've covered your uh, your songs over and over and over, and uh, you know I think that people need to learn more about what's going on in your crazy head by buying that book that you're holding up right there, Twisted, Twisted Business. Business. Yeah, two things. Twisted Business, it's Rosetta Books, available Amazon, in case your bookstores don't have it, and my podcast, which is the JJ French Connection. Yeah. Love it. Uh, which is the JYJY French Connection on Apple and um, Spotify and Podcast One. And I have a lot of fun because I do what you're doing with me. I do with my guests. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm endlessly curious. So let me ask you guys this question. How long have you been doing the show? Since February of this year. Okay. Are you enjoying it? Yeah. We love it. Our producer it. told us, you know, he came up with the idea. His name's Jared Tootin. And he said, look, I think you and you and Jason would be a good pair, you know, because you guys are such rock and roll dorks. But if we do this, I don't want you to think of it in terms of 20 episodes, 25 episodes. You got to think of it in terms of, hundreds of episodes and you know there there is no end in sight so if we're going to do it you guys need to be prepared for the long haul and jason and i looked at each other and went okay we'll give it a shot and we've been having a blast with it and guys like you just make the show even better and we're you know we're growing our listeners uh because the you know we're getting great stories from people like yourself and uh, yeah, so to answer your question, we're loving it, having a good our first, time. Is- our first 10 or 15 episodes, we didn't have any guests. It, we would pick a topic and it could be, we, we did an episode on the Deep Purple family tree, which, you know, you can connect so many dots and everyone's right. been sure. in, in Dio sure. and Sabbath and, you know, it's crazy. Um, so we were doing things like that and it was really, really fun and the comments were good and and then we uh, we just started booking some of our friends who are in the business or they're local heroes or they're they're just one of us, you know, and if you're one of us, you're there's you're welcome here and Got stories to tell. Yeah. And so it just it just kind of ramped up. And and then uh, we got we got more powerful artists uh, to want to be on the show who are releasing product. Uh, you know, and that's been good. Uh, we've had Simon Wright, John Karabi, you know, uh, name guys. And it's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads me to uh, thanking you for joining us today, JJ. Yes. Um, I'm a, uh, Twisted Sister had such an impact on my life and still does. I've got your albums right there in my collection. And uh, getting to know you as a person today over the past hour was really, really freaking I'm, I'm, cool. I'm man. so I'm so impressed with just how personable you are. And I would yeah. I think I, I think when I was 19, I was afraid of you a little bit. But <laughs> let, me say, I, let me tell you what my, what my daughter said to her when I started my podcast. I said, sweetheart, I'm going to do a podcast. She goes, Dad, if they pay you for talking, you're going to be the richest guy on the planet Earth. <laughs> and and i said and i said sweetheart if they pay you to use a cell phone you'll be the second richest person on the planet (laughs) boom exactly exactly well you're there's you're a natural at it there's a reason you're a great speaker and there's a reason you put out a book you're you do have stories to tell and you articulate them very well and your experience certainly plays into all that so thank you for sharing your time with us today thanks guys Yeah. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, our very special guest today, J.J. French. His new book is called Twisted Business. Go check that out. I'm Metal Dave Glessner. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast.